In Philippians chapter 2, we are reminded about certain things as it relates to our attitude. Just the other night, I went to the store to pick up some bread for our meal that we're going to have, that we had today at lunch. And while I'm sitting there in the bakery aisle and I'm not paying much attention to what's going on around me, usually when I walk into stores, I'm there for a certain reason and I don't really pay attention to what else is, is going on. And so I'm there looking at some bread and things and I hear a woman say from behind me, excuse me, sir, can you help me? Now this has happened to me numerous times and doesn't bother me. It kind of makes me smile, but I had to walk. She asked me to come over and help her get something off the top, sh off the top shelf. And so I did that and she, you know, she thanked me and, and my frustration from trying to find whatever I, kind of bread I was looking for disappeared because of her asking me for, for some help. And I said it to say that anything can affect our attitude on a daily basis. You know, when you get up in the morning, there are various things that can affect our outlook on the day and can really change how we go out throughout the rest of the day. If you get up in the morning and you make a pot of coffee and something happens and miss something goes wrong in the coffee pot and it burns your coffee or doesn't come out correctly, it can change your attitude. Again, I'm sure it would change Chuck's attitude if it, your coffee comes out wrong, being a big coffee guy. It wouldn't change mine as well. Same thing if we go to out in the, in the store and we try to find something we can't find it or attitude, whatever reason may be, your attitude can change on an instant if we're not careful. In Philippians chapter 2, looking at verses 14 and 15, the Bible says here, do, thing, do all things without complaining and disputing. I can tell you, being completely honest, I don't always do that because there are plenty of times when things need to be done that I complain and I dispute. Sometimes it's with myself. I complain about things that need to be done because as human beings, that's what we do sometimes. And we are reminded here from God's word from Paul speaking to those in Philippi at Philippi that we should not be doing those things, especially as it comes to doing the work of the church. We should not be those who are complaining and disputing about it. He says in verse 15, he reminds us one of the reasons why. He says that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Philippians 2 and verse 15. See, it's not uncommon in the world to see people complaining and disputing, or as the King James says, murmuring and disputing, or murmuring and complaining. We see that in the world around us, and we shouldn't be shocked when we see the worldly people acting that way, but we should feel shocked when we find sometimes ourselves caught up in it. That we start complaining and murmuring, and as we find in verse 15, it can affect how we look to the world, can it? He says in verse 15 that you be, may, be, be, may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Not that we are going to be sinlessly, sinlessly perfect. That's not what he's talking about there in verse 15. But we want to live our life in such a way that people look at us, they see a Christian, they see an individual trying to live a life that's pleasing to God. A person who's not walking around complaining about everything. And so they see a person who is different from everyone else around them, and different in a good way. So this evening I want to show what the proper attitude of a Christian should be in regards to not necessarily just the work of the church, but really in regards to our faithfulness. What is our attitude concerning our own 
faithfulness. If you think about this for a moment, what is our attitude or what is your attitude towards God? When a conversation comes up about God or the church, what is your attitude about it? Is it one of, oh, here we go again, someone's going off on their hobby horse, or whatever it may be, is our attitude? Or are we interested in Bible matters and Bible things? Let's consider some attitudes we find of those in the Old Testament. And every time I think about attitudes, especially those in the Old Testament, I always think about the book of Numbers and Numbers chapter 11. Because you find in Numbers chapter 11, these individuals were asking for meat from God. As we know, the Bible tells us that he is already feeding them from heaven. He was already feeding them from heaven. Think about that for a second. He's providing manna from himself to them, which they were to go out to gather up on a daily basis, not holding more for the next day, but on a daily basis, which shows us that on a daily basis, without fail, God provided for them, and they still complained. Look at verse 1 of Numbers chapter 11. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. That should be enough of a warning for us to realize that we need to be careful about what we can, when we complain because it's not pleasing to God. It's not pleasing to God. You know, so much of the Christian life could be the problems and the troubles could be solved. We realize that we shouldn't do anything that displeases God and we can cement that in our minds. We'll be a whole lot better off. He says in verse 1, For the Lord heard it. What do you hear? They're complaining. And his anger was aroused, the Bible says in verse 1. So the fire of the Lord burned among them. He consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. How bad was their complaining? He began to kill those who were complaining. God was providing for them on a daily basis, without fail. And they complained and they whined like they often did. Verse 2 says, And the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched, or stopped. So he called the name of the place Terabah, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. We continue reading there through verse 6. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again. This is what a second time of complaining. They wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? Think about this for a moment. You bring a homeless person in to your care, and you put out a nice big array of vegetables and a salad bar, basically in essence, and they were complaining that there was no meat. How would you feel? Is what you provided enough to give them some nourishment and to carry them through whatever they need to do for that day? Yes. And see, what we find in verse 4 and following is that they were ungrateful for what God has already been given them. And what's interesting is about this whole, whole situation is if they would have just approached God in the appropriate manner, without complaining, without crying out like they're in some great desperate need, you realize that God probably would have given them their wish anyway without the destruction of those who had, because there wouldn't be those who are complaining. But because they, they did not come to God and said they complained, they whined, we find in verse 4, they cried, they wept again there in verse 4, and they asked, who will give us meat to eat? Well, who, will, who would be the person who would give them meat to eat? It would be God. 
That's the only logical answer. We find in verse 5, they say, We remember the fish we, we ate freely in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up, and there is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Question, where did the manna come from? From God. But see, they weren't interested in the manna anymore. No, they're looking back and thinking about the blessings in their minds or blessings that they had while they were in Egypt. In Egypt, they were what? They were slaves. How bad was their perception of what their need really was? Hey, let's overlook the fact that we're no longer in slavery, that we're no longer in bondage. Instead, let's overlook the fact that God's feeding us manna from himself on a daily basis. And let's complain and say there's no meat to eat. There's no meat to eat. They say in verse 6, now our whole being is dried up. You ever heard a child throw a fit? I think this is a good example in many ways of an adult throwing a fit. Our whole being is dried up. We don't have, we don't have any meat to eat. Yeah, let's overlook the fact God's feeding you every single day without fail. Every single day. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Verse 6. The attitude of Israel was one that was poor and unthankful. Now we know we go back to verses, verse 1 and following that God had already dealt with their complaining once, right? The fire of the Lord burned among them. Verse 4, what happened? They cry out again. And what we find from verse 7 and following is that God grants he, because He is much too generous, much too kind, he grants them to have quail. The Bible tells us there's so much quail out there. I'm not going to do all the details of it. We read verse 7 and following. All they had to do is just walk out and just pick it up, right? But notice with me towards the end of the chapter in verse 32. And the people stayed up all that day, all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. They're out gathering up. What do you not read about in verse 2, verse 32? No thank you, no prayer to God, no type of thanksgiving whatsoever. No, not even an acknowledgement of where the quail had come from, right? Verse 33. But while the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. Why? Because they were more concerned about meat than they were about God and all the blessings He already given them. They weren't giving thanks. Instead, they were showing what it meant to be a true complainer and someone who truly overlooked the many blessings that God had already given them. He already brought them out of slavery, out of bondage, already brought them out to, away from that place, defeated their oppressor, was feeding them on a daily basis and made them a promise that he would bring them to the promised land if they remained faithful. But all they could care about, all they could see in chapter 11, so it would seem was, we don't have any meat here. Do we do that ourselves sometimes? Do we overlook the many blessings that God has already given us because there's something we think is missing? If they required meat to survive, if God knew that they were going to require this meat in order for their body to make it all the way, you think he would provide meat? Well, yes, at some point he would. Because his purpose was not to bring them out to the desert to die, which was one of their accusations when they complained. His purpose was to get them to the promised land, but they had to be faithful in order to get there. And in chapter 11, chapter 11 we see 
one of their many problems was they were overlooking the many blessings of God and they were complaining. Today, we cannot be guilty of that same mistake. We cannot overlook all the blessings that God has given us and still complain. As we find back in verse 1, it displeases the Lord. It displeased Him then, and no doubt it will still displease Him today. What about in the New Testament? We know that John the baptizer would pave the way for Christ, preparing the way, right? Making the crooked path straight and so on, preparing the people for the message that the Christ, that Christ would bring. We find in John chapter 3 and verse 28, here he says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. What's interesting is that John the Baptizer had been preaching for a good period of time. You notice he's not jealous or upset. It's time for him to back away and let Christ do what he came to do. He didn't try to fight for presence before all. He didn't try to get in front of Christ and be the one who's saying, now wait a second, I've been preaching here before you. You don't find that. Look again at verse 29. He says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. The bridegroom's voice there in verse 29 is a reference to Christ. And who is the friend who hears him? He's a ref really could be a reference to John himself. He's saying here he is glad that Christ is here. He's rejoicing because he's hearing what? The message from Christ himself. And in verse 30, what does he say? I must... He must increase, but I must decrease. It's time for less of me and more of him. It's a humble attitude, isn't it? It's a right one. Understanding completely that John knew that Christ, being the Son of God, not only was, that, was there no other way, that that was God's purpose for Christ to begin to take that position and for John, for indeed, for him to decrease. We don't hear him complaining about it. You don't hear him murmuring about it. Instead, he points out in verse 29, that his job is to rejoice greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. We too should be thankful for those who are out preaching and teaching the truth today. John was not one who wanted to stay in the limelight, so to speak. Instead, he was willing and grateful to step away to listen and to allow and to not to interfere with any of the work of Christ. Instead, to rejoice at his coming. Paul also had the proper attitude in the answer to his in his in his answer to his prayer in his prayer to the Father in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Meaning there was something that God had caused to be in Paul's life that caused him to help, help him to remain humble. Some say his eyesight, whatever, it doesn't really matter what it was. But what he points out here in verse 7 was that God was going to keep him humble and that we find in verse 7 that Paul speaks of this in a positive manner, right? He says, lest I should be exalted above measure unless people think too highly of me. I don't hear a whole lot of preachers who are well-known saying those kinds of things. I don't hear too many men saying today, you know what, 
I appreciate your kind remarks, but you know, the Bible is where we where our standard is. The Bible is what guides us. It's not me, it's not anyone else, it's the Bible. Because we have a problem today, not uncommon, and when people become well known, they begin to like it a little bit too much. The Apostle Paul reminds us here in verse 7 that he was not to be exalted above measure. He says in verse 8, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Yes, whatever that thorn in the flesh may have been to be removed three times. The Lord did not do so. What happened? He decided, what? I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing anyway. I'm not going to have a bad attitude about it. Instead, he would, as you find here in verse, uh, verse 9, he would glorify God despite all these things. He had the proper attitude. What is the attitude towards God today? Is our attitude as it should be? Are we thankful or are we complainers? First Chronicles 16 and verse 8 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples. I mean, we tell people what God has done for us. We'll tell people how God is always there listening to our prayers as we go to Him in prayer through Christ, being our mediator, right? That He always is faithful and just with us. That we know that in Him is no darkness at all. And we are thankful for that because if there is darkness in God, then He's just like everybody else, isn't He? That we are reminded that in God and from Christ, we have every good and perfect gift that comes down from above. Things which we remind people of, and we should. Make known His deeds among the people. Verse, uh, Psalm 79 verse 13 reminds us, So we, your people, and chip of your pasture, will give you, give you thanks forever. We will show forth your praise to all generations. You think about the prayers you offer up to God on a daily basis, hopefully more than daily. How many of those prayers include things of thankfulness, of gratefulness, of gratitude? But do we realize how much God has done for us and does for us each and every day that doesn't have to do? All the things He blesses us with because He is our great and awesome God from whom all blessings flow. Is your attitude constructive or destructive? Does it build up or does it tear down? What does bad attitude, what, what, or what comes from a, with a bad attitude? Well, a bad attitude causes jealousy, wrath, gossip, and lies. Doesn't sound like anything good, does it? Jealousy, wrath, gossip, lies, and we could probably list a whole lot more. It also causes the faith of others to be hindered. If we have a bad attitude, let's just pick one. Let's say about the attendance of the church. Let's say we have a bad attitude about coming to worship on a regular basis as we should as a faithful servant of God. Let's say we have a bad attitude about it and we start saying things, well, Hey, I was there this morning. That's enough. Is that a good attitude? Hey, I was there last month at the potluck, right? That's when I was there. That's not a, that's not a good attitude, is it? See, attitudes are like many other things in life. It can affect others. It can rub off on other people. So if you start having a bad attitude, others can pick up on it. 
And so we, what we have to do, we have to work to remove that, to change that. What comes with a bad attitude? Unfaithfulness. When we have a bad attitude, again, others will follow. We start saying, well, I don't want to be there every Sunday. I don't want to be there every Wednesday night. Others may start thinking the same thing. They'd be wrong to do so. But they may start doing that. So-and-so is not here. Well, shame on them. Doesn't mean we should follow that example. When we have a bad attitude, we hinder the, the good news of the gospel. We hinder the work of the church. We hinder the ability to reach out to the lost when we have a bad attitude. If all we're talking about is the failures or the shortcomings, which to me, in my mind, if we're doing the Lord's work, we're not failing. It's just others are not willing to do what is right. If we're out knocking doors or preaching the gospel and gospel meetings, we're having BBSs, whatever it may be, and we're trying to do the work of the Lord, and others are not coming as we would like for them, doesn't mean we have failed. What it means is that person or those persons, their heart is not yet right with God. You realize how many people heard Christ and still didn't obey? You realize how many people heard Christ and still did not obey? Thousands, to put it mildly, probably, right? Over the, over the several years of his ministry, him, the, the Son of God, preaching and teaching the gospel, healing the sick, raising the dead, and not so on, so had those who did not obey. We know, for example, the Jews, on one occasion when a blind man was made well, able to see a man who was blind from birth, they accepted his healing, but they denied it was Christ as the Son of God who did it. What happened to this man? You remember that? They went back and questioned the parents, and the parents said basically ask him because they didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue, right? Because if you profess the name of Christ as the Son of God, uh, the Son of God, you were kicked out of the synagogue. They saw those things, and yet they still denied Christ. The same is still still happens today. That does not mean that we have failed in some way. Bad attitudes must be resolved. Bad attitudes must be corrected for the sake of the person who has that poor or bad attitude. And sometimes it's very hard to fix, isn't it? I say that from experience. Sometimes it's very hard to fix. We see things we wish were different and it gets us down, our attitude changes, and sometimes it's hard to pull it back to where it needs to be. We have to do it. Bad attitudes must be corrected for the sake of the person, and they must be corrected for the sake of of others because we don't want our bad attitude to infect others. We want others to catch something from us. We want them to catch zeal, not discouragement. We want them to catch catch excitement for doing the Lord's work and not a burdensome attitude instead. Is your attitude constructive? Is our attitude building others up? That's what we mean, right? We look at Romans 15 and verse 30. He says, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. He wanted them to pray with him, to pray together. Is a proper attitude, does it include the proper prayers, praying for one another? When's the last time you prayed for another member of the congregation? When's the last time you prayed for another member who was another person who is not a member of this local congregation? When's the last time you prayed for leadership of a congregation 
or for the various preachers, I can say preachers because I'm not the only one here who preaches now, so the various preachers, and the last time we prayed for them, or Bible class teachers. See, we must have the proper attitude about prayer. And because prayer is something that does build us up if we have the proper attitude about it. Do others see that we love the Lord by our attitude on a day-to-day basis? In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, he says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. That, those things remind us of certain attitudes, doesn't it? Exhort or means to encourage, right? It means to build up. That's an encouraging attitude. Warn those who are unruly. That's a loving attitude, right? You warn those who you care about. Comfort the faint-hearted. That shows love and concern. That's a proper attitude, isn't it? Uphold the weak. We strengthen them. That shows a strong, constructive, building attitude, doesn't it? Be patient with all. Boy, there's another tough one. The proper attitude towards all those things. And none of those things are easy. It's easy to read that verse and say, yeah, I see. We should be encouraging and help others. I get it. No, it's much more than that. It's having a proper attitude towards all those things. Not because we feel like we are obligated, but because we desire to do so because that's what Christians do. Would the Lord recognize that we love Him by our attitude? Are we having an attitude of faithfulness and endurance? Meaning, are we willing to have the proper attitude on a long-term basis? And when we have, when we have problems with attitude, we correct it. But our goal is to have the proper attitude every day. That's hard to do, isn't it? You know, it's, it's kind of funny sometimes because I know Chuck is in a lot with technology and stuff as well, but I'll tell people all the time because we're doing OEBS and podcasts and things, I tell people all the time, sometimes you got to turn that stuff off and get away from technology, get away from media, and get back to the quietness that is removing us from all those worldly influences that can hinder us. Not that Bible podcasts do, don't misunderstand me, but sometimes we turn all those things off to get back to the very basics to make sure that we have the proper attitude. Are we having an attitude of faithfulness and endurance? Do we have the attitude the Lord would like for us to have? You think about, take just for today, for instance, what has your attitude been today? Has it been one that's been encouraging to others? Has it been one that you need to maybe correct? <coughs> An attitude maybe that we, we're not so proud of after all. A few things for us to think about as we close this evening. Do you remember the attitude of Cain in Genesis chapter 4? His, his attitude is one I like to point out because it's so clear, but there's others as well. We can talk about Joan like we have been on Wednesday night. We can talk about the attitude of some of the friends of Job. But Cain is one that is quite remarkable as he's talking to the Lord literally in Genesis chapter 4 and still nothing changes with Cain. In Genesis chapter 4 beginning in verse 3 the Bible says, In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And he also brought of the firstborn of his flock and, and, and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance Fail. What just happened in verse 5? His attitude changed. He became angry. You, you, you can't become angry without your attitude changing, right? 
became angry and his countenance fell. His attitude changed. So the Lord said to Cain, verse 6, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? I mean, why has your attitude changed, right? He's upset. His attitude has changed. Why? Because his, his offering wasn't accepted to God. Accepted by God. Look at verse 7. Well, that's what the Lord says to him. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. God quite plainly in verse 7 tells Cain, look, you can solve this problem and you will be accepted by me or you can do something quite different. He says in verse 7, if you do not do well, I mean, if you don't do as you should be doing to make your offering accepted by me, sin lies at the door, he says, and its desire is for you. Sin desires to have him. Why was he in danger? Because of his attitude. It wasn't necessarily just in danger because his offering was rejected. He, it was, he was in danger because he was going to refuse to make it correct. And we find in verse 8, or he goes on to say verse 7, it's desires for you, but you should rule over it, meaning your attitude can change. You can overcome this temptation to sin and to, and to not do well. We find in verse 8 what happened. Cain talked to Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up and killed, rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Why? He became angry and his attitude changed. We might say today he snapped, all right? He snapped, he could have still fixed it, right? Before he killed his brother. We find in verse 10, or verse 9 rather, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? A sarcastic comment. Really, isn't his attitude was one that was terrible. And we find following that God would repay him justly for it. He would, what? He would go off and be marked and no one was to touch Cain. He was going to be have a difficult life, basically to paraphrase, for the rest of the remainder of his days because of what he had done to his innocent brother. Because attitudes, as we find in chapter 4, can they be lethal? It was for Abel. So the time comes now to, the, kind of, the time comes for us to decide what we're going to do by our own attitude. What is your attitude Today, what is your attitude doing for others? And what is it doing to the Lord? Those three, four questions, rather. Three, sorry. What is your attitude? What is your attitude doing for others? What is it doing to the Lord? Three things we must consider. And our final verse for this, for this evening, going to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 16. So then, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. These individuals in Revelation 3, their attitude was one that what? They rose the fence on doing what was right and doing what was wrong, accepting others, rejecting others. They rode the fence of faithfulness with God. They were lukewarm. Their attitude was not one that we really love the Lord, we're going to do whatever He says. And it wasn't one that we totally reject the Lord, we're going to just walk away from Him. There's one that we're going to be lukewarm and just try to stay right in the middle and make everybody happy. The Bible tells us in verse 16 that as a result of their temperature, he vomited them out, right? Their attitude was not right. It wasn't one of, we are all in for the Lord. 
Their attitude was wrong about God, about the truth. We think about this for us today. What is our attitude? You know, everything in life can be fixed. If it's we have done something wrong, everything has a solution. Sin has a solution. Repentance, confession, prayer, that's the solution, right, for the Christian. For the non-Christian, the solution is obedience to the gospel, putting on Christ in baptism, becoming a member of the body of Christ. But, you know, our attitude affects a lot of that as well, doesn't it? Are we going to listen, consider, at least, or are we going to discard? You know, if our attitude is not right with God, nothing else will be. You know, your life cannot be right with God if your attitude is wrong, because your attitude will be wrong about everything else, won't it? In order to be right with God, we have to make sure that our attitude is correct, that it's pleasing to God, and when it's not, we correct it. Because, friends, our bad attitude can, as with the story of Cain and Abel, quite literally cost people their lives. No one may die physically because of our attitude, but if it rubs off on others, they can die spiritually, can't they? They can say, you know what, I don't want anything to do with the church. Look at their attitude. I'll stay home tonight. You know how often that happens? I'm not that it should be scary. We have seen that a lot over the years, haven't we? Our attitudes of others rub off, and before you know it, people stop doing what is right and what is good in the sight of God. We cannot allow that to happen to us.